it's been important for me to kind of make a lot of stuff. And then I think maybe in a year or so, I'll kind of evaluate and we'll see what happens from there. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hill Zambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and a leading manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emotions or code a screen. All you need is your design and you are ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Jay Lee Garcia. Lee is a professor at Kent State University whose multidisciplinary practice explores her biracial identity and other contemporary Latino American issues. We talk about what it was like to grow up in Dallas, family dynamics when one parent is a seventh generation Texan and the other is the child of undocumented immigrants the 2016 election, and making work about border politics in the Midwest. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to break down borders with Jaylee Garcia. Hi, Lee. How's it going? Hi. Good. How are you, Miranda? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've feel like I've your work has been in my consciousness for a long time. And then I got to have the delight of actually meeting you at SGCI in person this year. Briefly, there was so much going on at that event, but that was really great. And then, yeah, now we have you on the podcast. So welcome. And I'm really excited to get to know you more. Thank you. Yeah. And I already told you this, but I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I assign it to my students all the time to listen to. So yeah, I'm just really honored. And thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I always love hearing that professors are are forcing students out there in the world to listen. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things to hear, um, for sure. That's like, this is, this is what an archive looks like, kids. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. Yeah, Yeah, they love it. They love the podcast. And I think they'd prefer listening to the podcast rather than reading you know, another reading for the week. So it's a win-win. I should have a tagline about Hello Print Friend making archives fun since 2018. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, before we get into the questions, and if you listen to the podcast, I'm sure you know what's coming, which is the (laughs) introduction invitation, which is the who you are, where you are, what you do, Lee. Okay. Well, my name is Lee Garcia. I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, but I live in Kent, Ohio now because I teach here at Kent State. So I'm an assistant professor of print media and photography at Kent State University. And I teach there with Taryn McMahon, another incredible printmaker who you might be familiar with. And yeah, so I've kind of, I made a big journey from Dallas. I went to undergrad at the University of North Texas in Denton 
and then jumped to Madison, Wisconsin for grad school, then back down to the South to Pensacola, Florida for a year, and then up back to the Midwest. So got my Ohio driver's license recently. So I guess I'm a Midwesterner now. (laughs) That is so very much the art academic, or really just arts life, that kind of ping-ponging around the country or in Tim and I's case around the world, just kind of going where the opportunities are. I definitely know that feeling. I I just actually got my New Mexico driver's license and it's, 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 it feels big, right? You're like, I guess this is my state now. (laughs) And then, so you touched on this a little bit, but can you speak a little bit to your experience growing up and what role art had in that part of your life? Yeah. So I'm originally from Dallas, um, from Dallas, Dallas, not a suburb. That's important. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. But yeah, I grew up in Texas and I kind of had an interesting upbringing just being biracial. So on my dad's side, I'm Mexican-American and my grandparents you know, were immigrants from Mexico, actually came undocumented to the country. And then on my mom's side, very different story. I'm a seventh generation Texan on my mom's side. So I come from a really long line of sort of stereotypical white cattle farmers that, you know, still go to rodeos all the time and (laughs) eat barbecue. Mm. Yeah, I just kind of grew up with that dichotomy. But my parents were actually uh, music educators. So my mom was an elementary music teacher forever, like 25 years. My dad was a band director for a while and then eventually kind of went into like, he was like a school counselor and stuff, but he always played music on the side, played drums on the weekends, mm-hmm. he was like a jazz percussionist. So I grew up in a very musical household and growing up, you know, I was playing instruments and stuff, but it wasn't until high school that I really started considering visual art. So in Dallas, we have Booker T. Washington, which is a high school for the performing and visual arts. Mm-hmm. And really awesome school because it's a public school so it's free and you kind of have to go through an application process to get in but once you're in it's a it's a free four-year program and half your classes are dedicated to art so I got in and I learned about printmaking my junior year of high school and then ever since then it's been all right printmaking's the thing (laughs) oh what a wonderful experience I've actually uh, heard of the Booker T. Washington School before. I think it kind of oh, really? looms large a bit in the people's dream of what arts could be like in public education. Oh my God. So just like maybe for a, a little bit more context, you're talking about yourself as having one side of your family be this seventh generation Texan. Mm-hmm. I was trying to imagine what time period does that put us in if we go back seven <laughs> generations? Is that 1700s or? Yeah, something like that. It's before the Civil War. And, wow. you know, that's something my family, they never want to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, we had Confederate soldiers fighting mm-hmm. on my mom's side in Texas. It's pretty, pretty wild and obviously not something to celebrate, but part of our history. Mm -hmm. I think luckily we're kind of in a time where people are being really honest about their family histories in this way and understanding that like this is a part of who we are and Many of us are extremely privileged in part because of those histories. And as you said, like not something to celebrate, but also something to just kind of say, okay, this is a fact. And what do I do with these facts? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. We talk about it like my white family at least talks about it in such a different way than my Mexican family because we don't really say we're like a I don't even know what it would be on my Mexican side. Like we were in Mexico for 10,000 years. So what is that in generations terms? And then even calling ourselves Mexicans is like, you know, what was Mexico before it was Mexico's Mm -hmm. indigenous. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. And I think we'll 
probably get into it a bit more when we talk sort of more specifically about your your practice, which, you know, certainly is diving into those issues and I think your own exploration in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So so growing up with these two parents who are in music, did you feel pressure to go into music over visual arts at all? <laughs> Yeah, a little. They like forced me to take piano lessons for like uh-huh. 12 years. And <laughs> actually kind of pushed me away, pushed me away from music. But I was like, you know, I think like most artists you talk to, they're like, oh, I always loved drawing. You know, as a kid, I was always making stuff. And that was definitely me, like always sketching and um, making tents and like, you know, clay things. I think Booker T, that was just such a pivotal moment in my childhood. And like, really, I I owe like my entire printmaking career and really my life to my high school printmaking teacher, Ava Kuchai. She was like this really tall, exciting German woman mm-hmm. who was really into the free Tibet movement. Oh my and gosh. So, yeah, it was like this cool thing. And she's my high school printmaking teacher, just super passionate about printmaking, but always kind of contextualizing it around like, look, you can use this medium to make multiples and to share information and like change the world, you know, and to a high schooler, that's like really seductive and exciting to have, you know, to think that you have like kind of power to change the world. Yeah. It's like, that's my kind of woman. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She sold me. That's wonderful. And so did you kind of then with that seed, you know, always sort of think about your practice through social change or political lens with a, a wonderful German bird whispering that in your <laughs> ear from a young age? Yes. Yeah. I've always thought of my artwork in terms of like political and social justice, I guess. And I think also because I was, you know, growing up biracial, like in high school is such a, an important time in your kind of development. And so I was really thinking about race and thinking about where I lie between these two races and also seeing like the stark contrast between my two sides of my family and how one side was treated differently than the other. And, you know, on one side, there's college education and on the other, there's not. And so I was just really thinking through these things. And so it felt like a really like the perfect solution, you know, when come when uh, thinking about what to make through my artwork, that was just kind of coming through. So even in those early years, that still was coming out in your art making, huh? Yeah, in very subtle ways. But but I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, I was feeling it. I mean, printmaking, as as we've spoken to it, it, it is such an incredibly powerful force for making a really strong image or even image with text. And mm-hmm. then being able to reproduce and get it out in the world in a physical way. You know, like you can make a great graphic or a great meme that really speaks to someone. It might run around the internet, but there's nothing about actually encountering that aesthetic confrontation in the real world that still, I don't think there's anything quite as powerful as that. Yeah, I totally agree. And also like having multiples and you know, I just keep thinking about in high school when I'm first learning about printmaking and how exciting it was that I could make a ton and I could give them to all my friends, all my mm. family, I could print them on T-shirts. And like, you know, my friends, we would all just wear each other's lino cut printed T-shirts and <sighs> to support each other. And um, yeah, it was that was like the start of of my love, my my lifelong love. And then so you, you know, you end up going to Madison, which, of course, is a very, very well respected print school and, and where hosted the last SGCI where we met. And so mm-hmm. once you were there, were you sort of focusing your practice in one particular medium or another at that point? Or, or were you just kind of taking it all in? Yeah, I think I entered the program definitely focused on screen print and relief. And even today, those are kind of like my favorite print processes to work in. 
But yeah, you know, like most people in grad school, my work changed dramatically. Yeah. And I think my thesis show didn't even include any any prints in it. It was actually sculpture and installation with some drawings. Yeah, it's funny that that happens. My husband and, and co-editor and co-founder of the podcast, Tim, you know, mm-hmm. went to his MFA for printmaking and he ended up showing his dad's old work shirts as his MFA thesis show. (laughs) So it is always like a a really interesting, I think often really challenging time for artists, but can, of course, no pressure, no diamonds, as they say. Yeah. (laughs) So how would you describe your current practice now? My current practice has taken a dramatic shift in the past, mostly because of my use of paper making. So Yeah, it's changed in terms of like conceptual content before I was making work about undocumented immigration. So in grad school, I was like really focused on understanding undocumented immigration kind of as a way of processing my own identity, knowing that my grandparents came to the United States through undocumented immigration and considering, you know, my kind of familial connection with that phenomenon. And then the pandemic has changed a lot of things. And I think my age just kind of Mm. growing older has changed a lot of things. So yeah, I'm now focusing more on my personal kind of biracial identity development with how that kind of relates to undocumented immigration. But then also just through medium, including paper making. So I've been getting really, really pumped, excited about paper making. I'm teaching it at Kent State now too, which is probably influencing my work, but it's becoming a little more sculptural too. Hmm, interesting. And so how is the, the paper making kind of showing up in your work then? Lots of different ways. I'm, I'm, you know, it's a very new stuff. So I'm doing lots of experiments and things, but I've been making papyrus. So I've made onion papyrus. I've been working with tamale or corn husks, which isn't technically paper, but it, it feels like paper. And I've been kind of printing on uh-huh. it paper. Um, Also making handmade washi. So, you know, I'm in Kent, Ohio, and I'm really fortunate because we actually have the Morgan Conservatory of Paper Making just 45 minutes away, which I don't know if you've ever been, Miranda. No. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. It's like a papermaker's dream. So yeah, the the Morgan Conservatory of Paper Making, it's just incredible. So I've been taking a lot of workshops there. They taught me how to make washi, handmade washi paper. So I've been printing on that. So just lots of experiments. But I think the it's really shifted my idea of how I'm kind of assembling my my images because I've been screen printing on the handmade paper, but then cutting and collaging it together, which is a very different way of making than I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could speak a, a little bit more to that experience that you had dived into about your biracial identity and then maybe a bit about that kind of complex relationship between Texans and Mexicans. And I invite that question in part because I know that there are a lot of international listeners to the podcast. And I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of our stateside listeners, this has been a a huge issue in the public sphere for for quite some time. But I know from talking to international listeners that it's an issue that outside of you know, the fact that they knew that there was some terrible things going on in Trump's campaign in relation to it. That's sort of the vague understanding of this um, complex and and deeply historical side of, of the U.S. And maybe you can just speak to your, your personal experience, because I know that this is, you know, you could do a hundred podcasts in a row on it and still oh just scratch the surface. But <laughs> maybe, yeah, so asking maybe to kind of speak from the eye then rather than being like the, the authority. Yeah. Yeah, even then I'm like, oh, gosh, how do I even start to talk about my experience with this? <laughs> yeah. 
But so, yeah, just speaking from my own personal experience about sort of the relationship between white Texans and Mexicans or Mexican-Americans in Texas. Is that kind of what you're wondering? Yeah. And and then maybe kind of how that showed up in your work. Well, it's interesting because in Texas, there are so many of us that are biracial, half Mm. Mexican, half white. And it gets really complicated when we start talking about race, especially with Mexicans, because right now Latino is not technically its own race as defined by the U.S. Census Bureau. Mm. So that's something that's been up for debate. And actually in 2020, this most recent Census Bureau, they were considering making Latino a race. And the Trump administration actually decided against that. So there's kind of like two sides to this debate. Should Latino be a race or not? Some people believe it should just be an ethnicity because within Latino, the Latino category, there are like Black Latinos or Afro Latinos, there are white Latinos, there are indigenous Latinos. And then there are other people who feel like Latino should be a race because we are racialized in so many different ways. And, you know, of course, the U.S. Census Bureau's categorization of races is what essentially allows us to disperse money to communities. So many other kind of political, social things that I don't even know how to wrap my head around. Like, it's very complex. So I'm kind of going off on a a whole other tangent here. But Mexicans specifically were categorized as their own race. I think it was in like the 18... 90s maybe that Mexican was a race. Hmm. So it gets very complicated. And that's something I'm really interested in is how people with my specific makeup of being Mexican and white racially identify because I I choose to to identify as biracial. Some people would just call themselves white Latinos maybe. But anyway, so there's so many of us with this kind of genetic makeup living in Texas because of the proximity to the border. So you would think that there would be this kind of like harmonious, you know, cultural appreciation and sort of respect for one another, but it can really not feel that way. And I think it just has a lot lot to do with economics and kind of fighting for resources and undocumented Mexicans coming over to Texas. And of course, there's this like racial stereotype that undocumented Mexicans are stealing jobs and doing Mm -hmm. all these negative things to our economy when In reality, they're paying taxes, they're working these jobs that no one else wants to work. And then looking at the larger historical picture of just how the United States has actually taken advantage of Mexico and other Latin American countries with policies like NAFTA and yeah, just essentially like going into Mexico, using their cheap labor to kind of siphon wealth up into the US and then not allow for people to follow that money, right? which has created this horrible economic situation and essentially an economic refugee crisis. So <laughs> that's kind of my like, really shortened version. I could go on and on talking about this for days, but <laughs> yeah, it's very complex. And I think especially when we're looking at Texas um, and other states that used to be a part of Mexico and they used to be, you know, of course, we're all indigenous land at one point. It's like, where do we really, how far into this conversation and how far back into history do we want to go to kind of justify the stereotypes and ideas that are going on today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was an incredible job of, of giving a bird's eye view of of something that is, as we said, we could do a hundred podcasts on it. And I'm actually thinking like, that yeah. actually would be an incredible podcast series if NPR wanted to take yeah. that on. Oh, yeah. right, right. Your local um, NPR station, fellas, because I would definitely listen to that. So this is the context that, that you grew up and you were born into. And then why do you think that, you know, out of all the things going on in Lee's life, the complex person, why do you think that for you, like using your art to dive into this side of yourself really kind of rang true and was something that felt like um, was necessary and and was what you wanted to do? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's because I'm a second generation American. So there's always this kind of like pressure that I need to be giving back to my community or something like that. Mm. But I've just always felt like if I'm making art and I'm living this incredibly privileged life where my only issue of the day is like, is this color too bright? You know, Uh ridiculous little like crises that I go through on the daily if that's like my privileged experience, then I need to be using my art to kind of give back or to do good. And I don't know, sometimes I think maybe that that's just my ego being like, oh, I can change the world. Or maybe, <laughs> you know, Eva Kuchai, my high school printmaking teacher, like whispering in my ear, like, you can change the world with this print. But <laughs> yeah, I think I love making art. I always knew, you know, I was going to be making art as a um, career. And so now that I'm at this point, it just feels natural to kind of make work to to kind of try and give back and, and bring some or bring some attention to these kind of issues. But it's also just kind of natural. Like these are the things I think about daily, every moment, every every day, I'm kind of thinking about these things and they're in the back of my head. So when I start making work, they just kind of come out. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of how it, it shows up in your work, I think for me, when I look at particularly your prints, you do such a wonderful job of creating a visual narrative that really brings forth the contradictions and the hypocrisy of, <laughs> I think, a lot of what white America keeps in their mind's eye about immigrants coming from the South. And mm. you've got a, you know, an image that says people in a cage and the cage is also a, a produce basket that has strawberries in it, I believe. And it says, you know, product of the USA on the side. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's such a clever, but also just like beautifully executed idea of bringing forth the humanity and inhumanity that we can put on our, our immigrant populations, I think. Maybe you can kind of like speak to to that piece in particular, it's it's one that I've seen from you. It was I think it was one of the first images I actually saw from you, and just it really just stayed with me as just like a a really smart use of imagery and and icons to just say a ton with the just like the the graphic image. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was one of my first pieces. I want to say maybe my third piece, kind of exploring undocumented immigration. So, you know, obviously that piece, it's titled El Sueño Americano, so the American dream. And, you know, obviously it's speaking to our agricultural industry and specifically strawberries because they're a really laborious crop to pick. And Mm -hmm. I say that in, you know, full disclosure, I've never picked a strawberry my entire life because, again, I'm super privileged. (laughs) Never had to do that. But my dad, you know, he grew up in South Texas, kind of below the poverty line, maybe on the poverty line. And he and his family would work as migrant workers now and then. And they even traveled as far as South Texas up to Oregon one summer to pick strawberries. So the strawberry has always been something that, you know, when I'm thinking about the agricultural industry in relation to undocumented immigration and Mexican populations, the strawberry is really kind of important to me and my mm. family. So, yeah, there's there's an estimation by the United I think it's the United States Produce Association or something that did a study. And it's something like 70 percent of the agricultural industry in the U.S. is undocumented, Mm. which is just crazy to, you know, it's hard to even wrap your mind around that. But yeah, because they're undocumented, you know, these people, it's really hard for them to stand up for themselves and they can be 
victors of victims of uh, labor trafficking. And there's just so many issues that we don't even think about when you go to the store and buy strawberries and eat them. And yeah, it's such a complex fruit. That idea of the invisible systems that keep other people comfortable is -hmm. such a powerful one. And that statistic of, you know, 70% of the humans who are getting us the produce that we go waltz into Trader Joe's and buy while texting and is really kind of staggering because of when you can't be, go to authority if you're being mistreated you, you, I mean you can only imagine like how much that must lend itself to being mistreated because the people will take advantage of that because humans can be horrible absolutely yeah, yeah. and it's such a beautiful fruit you know it's so bright and red and so it's kind of fun to make that print like mm. using bright colors and that's something I think about too in my work sometimes is like making kind of beautiful things that are really colorful that kind of draw people in and they're like oh it's strawberries and then to get kind of like poked in the eye with this mm, <laughs> little message you know that's kind of like my goal I guess. That's so appropriate to point that out because I think that's the other thing about a lot of your compositions and, and also your installation work is that they're just they're really beautiful and it is that spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down a bit and strawberries I feel like as, as you say they're not only are they just beautiful fruits but I feel like they're so even historically associated with luxury and excess and Mm -hmm. strawberries and cream strawberries and champagne has this this you're living the high life kind of association Mm -hmm. so yeah it works really well there's another one I was thinking of too in in terms of your really just with with visual language bringing forth these contradictions and the hypocrisy as they the the two guys who are I think they're wearing some sort of build the wall paraphernalia, but they're eating at a little taqueria. It made me think about how I'm sure for you, 2016 must have been, I mean, it was, I think for many of us, just, just a total psychic mindfuck. And then, so, but then to have these complex issues that have were with you your whole life and it sounds like you were engaging with critically your whole life suddenly and so kind of violently thrust into the coliseum of american politics that must have really changed things i would guess oh my gosh yeah yeah 2016 i want to go back there like (laughs) yeah yeah i mean the the trump election 2016 undocumented immigration becoming such a important kind of hot topic and politics and on the news. It was it was really hard. I think for a lot of us Latinos and Mexican Americans and, you know, people who are associated with undocumented immigration in one way or another. And for me personally, it was it really brought up a lot of these kind of biracial issues, you know, seeing one side of my family that's so close to undocumented immigration and mm-hmm. That's why we're here. And then my other side of my family, these white Republicans who um, voted for Trump and they're wearing MAGA hats. And it's like, gosh, how can I possibly be related to these two (sighs) opposing, you know, forces or communities? So, yeah, it's wild. And, And that piece in particular was really inspired by some experiences that happened to me in Pensacola, Florida, actually. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, I was in in grad school in Madison in 2016 which was an incredible place to be very cathartic, you know, to be going through such a horrible presidential election. It was a good place to be because it's the capital of Ma- of Wisconsin. So there were protests that I could go to every day mm-hmm. you know, to kind of let off some steam. <laughs> 
But right after grad school, I moved to Pensacola, Florida for a year with my husband to to teach as an adjunct. And that was a hard year because Trump was doing, I guess, rallies like for the upcoming election. And he actually came to Pensacola, Florida one weekend and like the whole town was just like painted and these red MAGA hats. And it was like my personal hell, you know, (laughs) and uh, I saw a lot of that that weekend. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can only imagine it just must have felt like truly unsafe, like like constant, like like little fight or flight mechanisms going off in your brain Mm -hmm. constantly. I I can just even just speak for myself as someone um, who's white and reads as cis and straight. Mm -hmm. I get a pit in my stomach when I encounter someone in a MAGA hat and I get a little pulse quickening just of of feeling just feeling like freaked out by the values that I'm assuming this person has and so yeah wow yeah it's crazy and I think making that piece was like really therapeutic for me because you know I went out and I saw something like that and was just disgusted and angry but not feeling safe enough to confront these people obviously so yeah Went yeah. home and I made a print about it and was like, "All right, fuck y'all! Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get these prints out to as many people as I can. Make fun of you." I think also, you know, a wonderful tradition in printmaking, and of course, because I've got this, you know, my degree in Northern Renaissance printmaking. I always think about <laughs> Martin Luther and the Reformation and oh. the history of political kind of imagery and of course political text and you know Mm -hmm. martin luther was saying just filthy things about the pope (laughs) you know writing and passing it around and you definitely are in a grand tradition of using printmaking (laughs) as catharsis (laughs) for sure so in terms of you talked about moved around a bunch and you've lived in texas and you've lived in florida and so now you're in the Midwest. And as you said, you've got your Ohio mm-hmm. license. You are a Midwesterner now. Yep. <laughs> How is that kind of entering your practice? Because I, I reckon it would affect it in a way, you know, in the sense that like when you're in Texas, you're, you're geographically so close to the issues that you're exploring. And you're in the, the Midwest. And there's certainly Latino populations for sure in the Midwest, but the, the geography has changed. And, yeah. and yeah, how, how are you kind of finding that affecting you and, and your practice? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. And my, my experience in Ohio has been kind of strange because I got here in 2019 in August. So I was here six months and then the pandemic hit. So it doesn't even feel like I've been really well connected with the community here. It's been hard to find community, you know, of course, with the pandemic. But probably the most influential thing that's happened to me since I got to Ohio was the pandemic, of course, and that my sister, who lives in North Carolina, so my sister and I are like super close. We're full siblings, so we're biracial in the same combination. And she lives in North Carolina. She's a PhD student. So when the pandemic hit, you know, all her classes went online. She's a mental health counselor and all the counseling sessions went online. So she moved up to Kent, Ohio and lived with my husband and I for, you know, off and on for about a year. So that was like really pivotal in my art making and my kind of like identity. And that's really impacted my entire art process right now. So yeah, it's funny thinking about like, oh, I'm an Ohioan now, but really it's (laughs) Most of my time in Ohio has been like in my house with my husband and my sister <laughs> making art. So yeah, I don't feel like super connected to the community here, but it's, I think that being kind of isolated, being indoors, being with my sister constantly too, has really helped me to kind of flesh out 
some biracial identity ideas. And that's kind of like where my art's focusing now. So that that's really been been the biggest part of moving to Ohio is really just getting the chance to live with my sister again, really. Yeah, well, and I don't know, I could definitely see too, having someone who you're so close with, who shared that identity growing up, growing up um, mm-hmm. in Texas, and who also is a counselor, like that sounds like <laughs> no, a great combination if you want to process some things. <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. It goes even deeper than that because she actually just defended her dissertation last week. So she's officially a doctor. Oh, congrats to her. I'm so proud of her. And her dissertation was on sibling relationships, biracial <laughs> sibling relationships and how siblings can influence your biracial identity development. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. Of, yeah, we're kind of the same person, just in different fields but I was gonna say yeah like that she's getting it at it from the the psychological and you're getting at it from the the cultural yeah wow what a what an interesting experience is she still living with you or is the pandemic kind of letting her go back to Carolina yeah she had to go back to North Carolina she was with us for about a year and she would kind of come for a couple months and then go back there give us some space come back you know but she's back and just finished up her PhD. So she'll be staying there now. But yeah, like I said, we're super close. And I think her living with me, you know, it was like every day we're talking about these things together. And of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd's murder was happening at the same time. So we were together through all of that, which also in a way influenced our kind of racial identity and having a mental health counselor live with you during a pandemic was thing. (laughs) Yeah, a pandemic and a racial reckoning. And (laughs) that's really interesting. If I don't know if there is a at all a short way to describe it. But does she have I don't know, like the 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 elevator version of of, you know, how does having a a sibling in a biracial identity kind of affect or or, or develop each other? Mm -hmm. So kind of like what did she find with her dissertation? Yeah, yeah, that's a much that's a much better way of asking that. I made that question way overcomplicated, but no, no, this is talking about the, the processing out loud part of part of life yeah. we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was super surprising. So she's done a lot of research first on monoracial sibling relationships and then did the study and she got over 500 biracial, multiracial, mixed people to fill out the study, some with siblings, some without. So it was a big combination. But it was surprising because with her research on monoracial siblings, usually monoracial siblings help each other in their identity. So she was expecting a similar thing, if not stronger for biracial siblings, because she and I always talk about how we've really helped each other through this whole thing. Like, no one in our family, none of our cousins know what it's like to be us, you know, and nobody mm-hmm. looks like us. No one has light brown skin with freckles like us, like all these things. So she was expecting um, the correlation to be very high and she actually found no correlation. And so it was a really kind of shocking, interesting result for her. But at the same time, she's thinking, okay, multiracial, biracial, mixed people, there's so many different combinations right. and we're such a complex, diverse racial group that it's, it's really hard to do research on us. And, and there's like barely any research out there today in essentially every single field on multi- multiracial adults. And of course, we're the largest growing racial category right now. Mm. The, the U.S. Census Bureau in 2010, it was something like three point or what was it? Maybe like 1% of the population was biracial, multiracial, and now it's up to like 10%. So it's been a huge increase. And of course, like it's all the children right now in the U.S. So yeah. it's really cool to see them grow up. But yeah, it was it was interesting. Her findings were not what she thought they would be. Oh, that is really interesting. I wonder if if in part it's so understudied aside from the 
pervasive uh, racial bias in the U.S., but if part mm-hmm. because it is so complex. So if you're trying to get funding or you're trying to get your little, you know, pitch to your grant, like it is, it's maybe kind of more difficult to to really sort of sum it up in a way because mm-hmm. bi- biracial, multiracial identities, as you've spoken to, it's just, it's, it's a whole nother level of complexity as well. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about your prints, and I want to make sure we've got time to chat about your installation work as well. Mm -hmm. So can you speak to maybe a bit about how you go about taking on the projects and how they fit into your broader artistic practice? Yeah, so I've really only done two kind of like major installations that I consider to be immersive, you know, really large scale. And usually it's a lot of planning. So mm. <laughs> obviously, and being a printmaker, I'm, I'm very much a planner. So finding the space, that's kind of number one for me. And I'm like a huge fan of kind of making a little maquette and taking the measurements and kind of, so every time I've done an installation, I've gotten the specs of the gallery, the specs of like the wall size and everything, and then kind of made little maquettes to fill it in. And I I really like making installations, like I said, that are immersive. So including sound components, even playing with the lighting, like I've done a lot of installations in the dark and then smell. That was something really fun that I did for my thesis show where I had incense because I wanted to kind of give this sense of like Mm. a cathedral or a funeral or something. So I burned some incense in there as well. How do you find that your audience interacts with installation differently than print? And I I feel like this might seem kind of like a, a really basic question, but I always find it really interesting the way different aspects of our practice fulfill different needs and like, and, and what they are wanting to put into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think with installation work, what I've found at least is that the viewers seem to be a little more empathetic towards the, the thoughts and ideas that I'm trying to express. So The first kind of large installation I did was called Seeking Asylum, and it was essentially like a metaphor for crossing the border and going through sort of a physical but also spiritual journey of crossing the border and crossing into the United States and potentially even like dying on this journey. Right. So I think by creating an immersive installation where the the viewers actually had to go through the space with a flashlight in the dark. And so they were really forced into this kind of vulnerable situation that they had little control over. Um, And again, I controlled like the entire gallery, you know, I'd sand on the ground. So that was controlling like how they walked and navigated and they had to bend down and go through a giant paper fence that I had made. And then there were audio components of like wind and coyotes howling and also some police sirens. So it was really like, you know, trying to create a sense of anxiety in the space too. I think with that piece in particular, I really was able to kind of control the viewer in a way that I haven't been able to do with my two-dimensional work. And in a lot of people, I think it, it left them feeling more empathetic towards undocumented populations mm. who have had to go through that journey. And it was kind of, you know, I look back on that piece and I wonder, like, was it problematic because I'm letting these white people kind of, you know, pretend to be undocumented immigrants? Like, that was not my intention, but it was something that kind of unintentionally happened with the piece. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm still really processing that piece was like four years ago now, maybe more, and I'm still processing the successes of it, I guess. Mm, That's really interesting to hear you kind of, you know, talking about it and the things that you liked and then also the things that the unintended consequences that I Mm -hmm. feel like with installation and immersive pieces, it's just the wild card factor is just 
infinitely <laughs> multiplied because yeah. you're getting humans involved in it, right? In a way right. where with two-dimensional imagery, while you can't, of course, control in any way the response, you have so much more control over the way it's received and that mm-hmm. that narrative. Whereas when you start letting humans be a part of what you've created, anything can happen at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, you know, as an artist, you think, okay, I'm going to control the viewer. They're going to have to duck under this wall to get through the space. But then in reality, it's, well, I don't know how, what they're going to do. They could tear it down. They, and, you know, they could start laughing through the piece and, like, I don't know. They couldn't do anything. People are crazy. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Do you think that you'll move more towards installation? I know you've been doing like sculpture work as well. Do you think that that's kind of something you want to dive into more in in your new home? (laughs) I'm kind of more focused on these two-dimensional pieces that have three-dimensional elements. Mm. And part of that is just, I guess, logistics, you know, creating an immersive installation. It took so much time and resources and shipping the piece. And, you know, because I did it, I did one installation in Madison and then showed the same installation in Florida and like shipping the work down there, installing it. I mean, it was so much work (laughs) and it was really fun and exciting, but these smaller dimensional works, especially incorporating paper making, I think they're allowing me to really flush out ideas a lot faster. And it's because this is such a new body of work for me, exploring my biracial identity. It's been important for me to kind of make a lot of stuff. And then I think maybe in a year or so, I'll kind of evaluate and we'll see what happens from there. Yeah, well, that's really exciting. And what do you kind of have on the horizon um, that you're looking forward to that people might be able to keep an eye out for? Oh, yeah. So this summer, I'll be teaching a workshop at Aeromont. I'm also teaching a workshop at Women's Studio Workshop. And then I'm going on a trip to Mexico for three weeks where I'll be doing... Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) So I get to see my family for a while in Monterrey. And then I'll be going to Mexico City and Querétaro with Marcos Sanchez, who I know has been on one of the Hello Print Friend podcast episodes. Absolutely. He he actually has the esteem of being the only guest who's been on three times. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he is, he, is a, he is an original print friend, Marco. Yeah, we, we love Marco. So you'll be, you'll, where will you be in, in Mexico? Uh, Marco's taking me to La Madriguera Gráfica in Querétaro. Will you be making work there or is it just more uh, research or vacation or all of the above? Yeah, it's a little, yeah, a little bit of everything. Thing. So like I said, a week in Monterrey with family, a couple days in Mexico City, kind of doing research, I guess, going to, well, who, I'm not going to lie, it's going to be vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and then Querétaro with Marco, we'll be doing a 10-day residency there. Oh, okay. So that's the, the residency. Oh, that's <laughs> that's very, very exciting. Have you ever had a chance to to go to Oaxaca and see the, the print world there? I have. Oh my gosh. I was only there for four days. So not enough time, but pretty incredible. Have you been? I haven't. It's such a such a dream for me. Now that I'm back on the, the same continent, yeah. I'm thinking it's it's going to be more doable. Well, where can people find you, Lee, and follow you and learn about all this exciting things and hopefully get updates from your trip to Mexico and your residency and that sounds wonderful yeah I have a website which is jleegarcia.com and then my Instagram is j.leegarcia and I also have to give a quick shout out to MAPC so I'm actually working with Taryn McMahon right now we're co-hosting MAPC at Kent State University oh that's right yeah 13th through 16th so we'd love to see y'all in Kent Ohio and you can learn more about MAPC at mapc2022.com 
Yeah, and sorry, what what month is that going to be? I think I spoke right over you when you were saying the month. Oh, that's fine. MAPC will be October 13th through 16th. Okay. Okay. I think, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that 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 got there because that is very exciting. And yeah, maybe we can see you there. Um, I'll just have you here. Yeah, I'd love to. And I'd love to, of course, see your friend and mine, John Michael Warner, one of my my early art mentors, for sure. That's very exciting. So, well, great. Well, Thanks so much, Lee. It has been really a joy to talk to you, and I, I really appreciate you being so open and just kind of raw about a lot of the hard things in this world that you are taking head on in such smart and beautiful ways. And so thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for sharing it with us. I really look forward to, to sharing our chat with everyone. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for asking, you know, hard questions. I know sometimes people don't want to talk about race on the fly, so <laughs> I yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thanks so much. And we'll go from there. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor Timothy Pauschak digs deep on materials, processes and techniques with past guests. Also, if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who would uh, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did. No joke, this really does make an impact in this podcasting gig. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Bill Lagatuda, master printer and workshop manager at the Tamarind Institute of Lithography from 1988 to 2015. We talk about his early days as a printer traveling around the country from job to job and how that made him rethink his career path every now and then. Landing at Tamarind and working with the incredible artists over the years, and the amazing exhibition up now at the Albuquerque Museum, Printer's Proof, which features additions from some of the great artists and master printers of our time. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.